to rejoice if our sins are forgiven, to rejoice that we have each other, we have a hope of heaven. We have the Word of God that helps us, warns us, builds us up, teaches us, gives us hope. We got so much to be thankful for, but look at 1 Corinthians 10 as we continue through. Verse 1 beginning says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant, how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Notice some things that he's saying here about Israel because he's going to apply that to us. The people of Israel is something that we can, a people that we can learn from. When you read those uh, accounts in the Old Testament, you're not just reading stories. You're not just reading folklore. You're reading about actual events, actual people. And whenever we're reading about that, it has a lesson for us to apply. And it's written for our admonition. Now, think about this for a moment. He says that they, he's referring to the event where they were brought out of Israel. Look at the blessings that he's drawing us to. Their deliverance from slavery. That's what he's talking about whenever they pass through the cloud and in the sea. If you recall... In Exodus chapter 16, or 14 rather, Exodus 14, what happened is, is they, the children of Israel had been in bondage for 400 years, okay? And they've been beaten, and God hears their cries. God understands the difficulties they're going through. And God tells Moses, I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people. Now, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. But he's warning them, he's not going to let you go by a mighty hand. And so God put all these plagues upon the Israelites. Oh, I'm sorry, on the Egyptians. But the Israelites were saved from that. Now, at the very last plague, which was the death of the firstborn, that was the one that finally allowed Pharaoh to let the people go. Then he changes his mind after they're already out there, and he goes chasing after them with, their, with his army and chariots. Now the Israelites have their back to the wall. They've got a sea in front of them, and they've got this army coming after them, and they are not trained soldiers. So Moses says, take your rod, tell the children of Israel, you won't have to fight today. The Lord will fight for you. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Tell the children of Israel to go forward. And so Moses parted the sea, and it says there was a wall to the left and to the right. Okay? So they passed through the sea on dry ground. There's a wall of water on the right and on the left. And also they were being guided by a pillar of cloud by day and a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. 
But at this particular time, they're crossing over. They've got a cloud above them. What do clouds hold? Water. And what's on both sides of them? Water. And so it's an interesting expression here that Paul is telling the Corinthians, look, they were baptized unto Moses. What's well, an interesting way of looking at it. Well, how were they baptized? Well, they were covered. They were immersed, water above them, water around them. And the baptism that he's speaking of is what separated them out of the Egyptian bondage that they had of slavery, brought them over into a free people. That corresponds to us because baptism is the defining point, very much like it was for them, that brings us out of the bondage of slavery, but not the physical slavery that, like the Israelites had, but the bondage of sin. We cross over by the Lord's doing, by His work, by His power. He cleanses us, makes us free from sin. And He's telling us, learn from them. Look at what God did for them. All the mighty wonders and works that he did for them and saving them. He's reminding them of another blessing. Verse 3, they did all eat the same spiritual meat. Well, what's he referring to there? Well, after they cross over, God closed up the water on the Egyptian army and drowned them, but then now they're over in the wilderness and how is a multitude of a nation going to survive? Where are they going to get food? Where are they going to get water? And how are they going to be sustained and taken care of in a wilderness that's barren? Uh, some uh, more knowledgeable people about math and, of, of sorts have, have done some calculations on how much water and how much food it would have taken to have fed, depending upon how, what the size of Israel was. But since we don't know that exact number, we'll say it's a lot. And there's no way they could have lived, okay? It would have taken train car loads full of food. It would have taken a lot of water to have supplied the thirst of these people. They could not make it on their own. They're murmuring and complaining. They've forgotten the blessing of God of saving them. So now, here, here's the thing. Coming over into a new place, they wanted to go back to their slavery. They wanted to go back into Egypt. That's a warning to us. Isn't it interesting? We gravitate to the familiar. We tend, we, it's like what, what happens is they wanted to go back where they had the garlic and the cucumbers and the leeks in, in Egypt, even though they were being beaten, even though they had this hard taskmaster slavery where they were treated like a number, treated like an animal, forced with hard labor, and God delivered them out of that bondage. But that's all they knew. We are creatures of habit. And I think very much like them, we could find ourselves in the exact same temptation of wanting to go back to our old ways, wanting to be what we once was, because that's who we've always been. And Paul is telling the Corinthians, don't do that. Remember what God has done for you. He has saved you. 
Do not trample under the foot those blessings. Don't discard those blessings. Appreciate what God has done for you. He didn't just save you out of physical slavery. He saved you out of the slavery of sin and has supplied your needs. It's in him we live and move and have our being. What God did for the Israelites here when he talks about them eating the same food and drinking the same spiritual drink, when they started complaining in, in the wilderness, God fed them bread right out of the sky, manna. When it hit the ground, it said it was like coriander seed. They called it manna, which means what is it? They didn't know what it was. They'd never seen that. Later in the Psalms, he calls it angel's food, I guess because it came out of the sky. Now imagine that. God is supplying their needs, food, right out of the heavens. And what they were to do is just simply go out each day, gather what they needed for each day, and thank God for it. And God sustained them. And God provided water out of the rock. They were also complaining, so... One time Moses was told to strike the rock. And what happened is all this water came out. It's interesting how here in 1 Corinthians 10, he says they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Well, how do you think, where was the power of where that water came from? What we're really seeing here is a fascinating concept of the idea of Jesus being in the Old Testament. Appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. It's not as if Jesus simply came into existence when he came to the earth as a baby. No, he's existed from the beginning. And he was actually present with them in the wilderness. He is the reason and the means by which they were sustained by this water out of the rock. So look, look, look at some of the blessings that I believe that Paul is referring to here. They were delivered from slavery. They were guided by God because of this cloud. They had fellowship with God. They're drinking of his sustenance. They, they are being provided for by God. Doesn't God still do some of these things for us? Maybe not exactly the same way. It's not manna like they had it but Jesus came down from the sky from the heavens and he walked among us and we're to live upon him he's to supply man should not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God we need to let the Lord provide for us and he does now what what did they think about these blessings well they forgot so easily well what can we possibly do we could forget start complaining like they did we can we can start blaming God when bad things happen to us we can start reminiscing about old days before we became a Christian let's don't do that when you're when you're saved by the blood of Christ and you have the hope of heaven and you've got forgiveness and you've got the avenue of prayer and you've got the fellowship of the Spirit there's no reason to want to reminisce about old days when you didn't have those blessings those are not times where 
I want to look back with a gleam in my eye. No, I'm ashamed of what I once was, and I'm glad I'm not that guy anymore. I'm glad I've been forgiven of those past sins. I'm glad I'm now able to walk and be sustained by the Lord today. But look and learn from the lessons of Israel in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 10. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now notice here that all passed through the sea, all were baptized, all drank of the same spiritual meat, all drank of the same spiritual drink. But many, and some of your translations may say most of them. Now, let's translate this to the most. What does that mean in numbers? M most means very much most. Only few actually pleased God. When we're talking about few, remember Joshua and Caleb were the only ones who were able to enter into the promised land. And all of the rest of that generation died out. That's how few it was. Many of them God was not well pleased. And what this teaches us to apply this, you could be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. You can have the avenue of prayer. You can taste the heavenly gift. You can have the fellowship of the Spirit. You can have the blood of Christ and the hope of heaven, and then you could walk away from that and, and displease God. God's not going to make you stay faithful. It's up to you and your choice. You don't want to do like they did and be overthrown in the wilderness. Now, another place in Scripture, it says that after God saved them, then destroyed them in the wilderness. The same thing can happen to us. After we've been saved from our past sins, we can go backward like they did. So we want to learn from them. Verse 6. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. So now what he's saying is look at their downfall. Look at the things they did. They lusted. What's that? That's when you crave things that are forbidden. There's nothing wrong with wanting some things. But some things are off limits. And God is not depriving us of any legitimate thing that we need. You know, wanting food in and of itself is not a bad thing. Asking the Lord for our daily bread, something he taught us to pray for. But complaining about the provisions of the Lord. That's a problem. Uh, and they lusted after other things. Now, when he talks about idolatry in verse 7, anything that you worship or place before God is idolatry. If you carve an image, it's so silly, really, to, to take a 
tree that God made, cut it down, carve it, and then pray to it, it's not going to hear you. It's not going to answer your prayers. It didn't make you. God made it, but then you shaped it. So it's so, it's so foolish to make that an idol. But anything other that, that you put before God becomes an idol. Anything you place before God. Don't be an idolater as they were. As were some of them. You don't have to follow the crowd. Okay? Sometimes it's even those who claim to be followers of, of God. Don't follow the crowd. Be willing to break free from the norm. Don't do what everybody else does. Don't have the mentality, well, everybody else is doing this, so therefore that's what I need to do. Look at what, look at what they did, what the majority did. But then it says, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That was quoted when, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he got the Ten Commandments. And he came back down off of the mountain the people had already forgotten all the good things and all the blessings that God had done for them. And you know what they did? They, they said, we don't know what's happened to this Moses. I guess 40 days is a long time. They're wondering, when is he going to come back? And so they took their earrings and all their jewelry and their gold and they, they shaped and, and molded a, a, a golden calf. And then worshipped it. And so when Moses came off the mountain, he was angry. He should have been. Because they committed idolatry. He broke the tablets, went back up on the mountain and got another set. But it made this point. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play whenever they made this golden calf. They, they, they indulged in this idolatry, this pagan revelry is what they did. And they committed fornication, verse 8. Well, now he's talking about uh, what took place when Balaam, the false prophet, was being encouraged by Balak to curse the children of Israel. And Balaam being receiving this from God, but he knew he couldn't say anything other than what God gave him. He, he couldn't curse them because God wasn't cursing them. But he gave a shrewd way of making the people unfavorable before God by telling them if they will observe this idolatrous practice with Baal Peor uh, this, this uh, idol then God will be displeased with them and that's how they will be cursed so he couldn't curse them with his words because that but he could make them commit or encourage them to commit sin and then they would end up being cursed by God which the end result is the same thing which makes him a false prophet. Which makes him a, a, a poor teacher. But they committed fornication. It says that they committed immorality with the women of Moab. Uh, when, you, when you read about that in Numbers 
So what happened is don't do what they did. Don't, don't be impure. And Paul's been dealing with this. They had immorality among them. A man had his father's wife in chapter 5. And then he's encouraged them not to commit these types of sins in chapter 6 because your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. You don't want to be joined to someone that you're not married to. You don't have the right to. In a right relationship, that's good and holy in chapter 7, but in a wrong relationship, that's not acceptable. God's not trying to deprive us of any legitimate pleasure. In the right context, it's okay between a man and his wife, and that's it. But outside of that, it's, it's sinful. And God is trying to protect us from, from the unholy relationships. Think about it. Diseases occur, all, all kinds of things. Uh, families are split. Children suffer the consequences of this kind of thing, and, it's, and they pay the price, and so everybody loses whenever that type of sin is committed. But God's not trying to say you can't have this at all. He's just saying make sure you do it in the right relationship. Now, you remember what happened. 20, over 20,000 people died because of the plague that was sent on them. Read about that in Numbers 21.6. Uh, or, or Numbers 21, or 21.5.9, rather. But in Numbers 21.6 through 9, what we read about is they started complaining. And because they were complaining, God sent fiery serpents or poisonous snakes and if it bit them you know they would die but they God gave them a remedy and it was like one of these tests he told Moses put a brass serpent upon a pole anybody that looks at the brass serpent will be saved anybody that doesn't they're going to die of that snake bite well so there you are there's the test but So he said, don't test the Lord like they did. So look, look at the things they did in their downfall. They lusted, they committed adultery, they committed fornication, and they murmured. What, and, and murmuring, by the way. God, you might think, okay, well, how does that one compare with idolatry and fornication? Well, you, you, who are you complaining against? Do you look at complaining about God's provisions as just as much of a sin? You should. And what does murmuring sound like? It's, it's one of those words that you're just kind of mumbling under your breath. Be careful about that sort of thing. It's a terrible attitude to have, to be, to be griping, complaining, grumbling. Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings. It makes you ugly. Who likes to hear complainers all the time anyway? Wouldn't you rather be thankful? Wouldn't you rather stop and count your blessings like we just sang? Think about those things. Think about the things God has done for you. And don't dwell on the things that you were tempted to complain about. I would encourage you, see how long you can go without complaining. 
I've tried to do the thing where you put a little bracelet on your hand and you say, okay, if I com- I'm going to go a month without complaining. So whenever I mess up, switch the bracelet over to the other hand, just something to remind myself. It's just an idea. It's just a suggestion. See how long you can go without complaining. It'll make you a more pleasant person. But it's, hard, it's a hard habit to break. It's a terrible habit, though. And we ought not be involved in it. In Romans 1, we're told how that there are those who uh, were uh, not thankful before God. Romans 1.21. Are you thankful for what God has done for you? When you got up this morning, were you thankful that the sun came up and you're on this side of the grass? Were you thankful that you got breath in your lungs? You're still living. Were you thankful for the people who are still in your life? Are you thankful for the opportunities you've got in order to try to do something good today? And how are you going to spend the rest of your day? Are you going to spend it griping or are you going to spend it being thankful? That's, that's the way we ought to choose to be. Notice how each of these, he says, neither let us do like they did. Don't lust like they did. Don't commit idolatry like they did. Don't fornicate like they did. Don't murmur like they did. So, in verse 11, now all these things happened unto them for in samples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Do you think those things were written for them? No, they're dead. <laughs> that account of what happened to them is written for us to learn not to do what they did. Do you want to learn everything the hard way? Or do you want to learn by example? When you say, okay, the earth swallowed some people up because they rebelled against the authority of Moses. Well, okay, I don't want to rebel against the authority of God, so learn from them their example. When they got bit by snakes, I don't want the Lord to be upset with me. So don't complain like they did. And so forth. Those things are there to teach us not to do what they did. Now, verse 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Now, here's where it seems the Holy Spirit has anticipated that it's a natural reaction for us as we're reading this to say, oh, I'm not like those Israelites. Oh, I would never do like what they're doing. I wouldn't, I wouldn't complain. I'm thankful. I wouldn't commit idolatry. I don't believe in that. I wouldn't commit fornication. I don't lust and tell myself that. But there needs to be a humility. If they did it, I could end up doing it. I need to be careful. I don't need to think so highly of myself. And this is what happens with temptation. Don't people do this? Oh, I'm strong enough. I can handle this thing. And then they flirt with a temptation, and they get just as close to the temptation as possible. Oh, I would never do that. I'm just going to get here, but I'm not going to go over there. And we tell ourselves that. And this is why he's telling us, if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. You could even have the right uh, determination that you're not going to sin against God. Peter did. When the Lord told Peter, 
you're going to deny me. He said, oh, I'll never deny you. I'll, go, I'll die before I do that. The Lord said, you're going to do it tonight, three times before the cock crows. And he did. Think about that. I don't think Peter thought, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deny the Lord. No, he was determined. But we've got to remember, okay, if, if it's the people I'm around, they can influence me. If it's what I'm putting in my mind, they can influence me. If I'm flirting with temptation, that can make me vulnerable. Be wise. Avoid the temptation. Don't go where you're tempted. Don't be around people who tempt you if you can avoid it, and so forth. Take heed lest you fall. And also this teaches us that there is a possibility of us falling. Sometimes people will say, you can't fall. Well, how can you say that if he says, take heed lest you fall, if it wasn't possible? It is possible to fall. They did. They were saved out of Egyptian bondage, and then they fell in the wilderness. You and I can be saved and then fall, just like they did. So take heed lest you fall. But remember this in verse 13. You don't have to give in to the temptation. You're not alone in your temptation. Each of us probably has our own weaknesses, but it's not anything new. Whatever your temptations are, other people have been tempted. So, verse 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, here he's talking about temptation to sin. You don't have to give in. It's not, here's, here's what we need to learn to do, not to make excuses for our sin. We don't need to say things like, the devil made me do it. This guy made me do it. She made me do it. They encouraged me. Everybody else is doing it. You just don't understand. I was kind of tired, and so I was just... Uh, in the wrong frame of mind, and that's why I gave in. Life's been hard on me lately. That's why I gave in. None of that. Just stop that kind of nonsense and excuses. Just take uh, ownership and say to yourself, I don't have to do this. I can resist this. There's no temptation so strong, no matter how strong it is. Whatever your thing is, that if you have a habitual sin, you need to first realize God is giving you the power and the ability to fight that. Maybe you're saying, okay, I just can't, I just can't defeat this gossip problem I have or this lying problem or, or this murmuring problem or whatever it is, or lust problem. No, you, you can defeat it. I know people who have. I know people who've been very addicted to some of these sins who have overcome these sins. And you can. Are you looking for that way of escape? And are you taking that avenue of escape? Are you fleeing from this temptation? 
as he says to do. Like Joseph did. And so, yes, first believe that you can fight it and overcome it. I think that's a, a beginning step. And realize that all temptation it has a similarity. First John 2, in verse 16, we're told that there's, there's three avenues of temptation. There's the lust of the flesh, that is, things that have an appeal to make it feel good. Lust of the eyes, things that look appealing. And then the pride of life, things that have some kind of promise to give us something that we think we need. That's not new. That's been from the beginning. All temptation has some aspect of, of one of those avenues. Satan tries to take something that is sinful and make it look appealing. And you need to not take the bait. You need to recognize that that sin is wrong before God. Sin has a lure, but it, it costs you way more than it offers. And you need to remember that. And you can resist it. Take the way of escape. Now, let me uh, clarify something that oftentimes this verse is quoted to mean that I don't believe it means. And that is sometimes people will quote this verse to say, God won't give you a trial that's so hard that you can't handle it by yourself. I don't think that's the point that he's making in this context. There are times where Paul said we were under pressure more than we could bear. There are times where sometimes people may be under a difficulty or a trial where maybe they can't handle this on their own. They might need the support and strength of their brethren or the prayers and help from God. So I don't think he's saying here that he's not going to give you a trial that is too hard. Now, God will help you in your trial. Others may be able to help you, lift you up. But there are times where sometimes physically we get weak over physical problems. Or we get weak sometimes over mental and social problems, relationship problems. And sometimes we might need help. And if, if you need help on some area, don't be afraid to ask for that and say, well, no, God, God said he wouldn't give me anything more than I could handle, so I can handle this on my own. Now, sometimes you might need that help. So put that in a proper context. It's not saying God won't give you a trial that is difficult. Sometimes God allows us to go through certain things. But I think the point in context is talking about temptation to sin. God's not going to give you or allow you to be tempted to sin and it be so strong of a temptation that you have to give in. You don't have to sin. You're not born innately sinful so that you have to give in. You can resist. And then he finally he says, verse 14, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. As the final point to bring the lesson to a close, learn from Israel's example. Don't fall the same way they did. Keep counting your blessings. Appreciate what God has done for you. If you haven't been freed from your sin, why, why don't you be baptized? Not unto Moses like they was, was, but into Christ. 
in water for the remission of your sins. Putting on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Having all your sins washed away. Then walk in newness of life, remembering and being thankful. Go away today rejoicing if your sins are forgiven. If you haven't done that, we'd like for you to do that before it's too late. You don't know how much time you got. Why not be in the right relationship with God? Whatever way we can help you, won't you come while we stand and as we sing?